Today we are in Luke chapter 21 from verse 29 down to verse 36. But by way of context, let me begin reading for us in verse 20. This is what God's word says, the words of our Lord Jesus. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask now that your spirit would illuminate our dull minds and awaken our drowsy souls, that we might have ears to hear your words and hearts and wills to do them and to heed them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, throughout our study the past few weeks of the Olivet Discourse here in Luke chapter 21, uh, we've been made to think a lot about the end of the world how the course of history will go and eventually conclude with the glorious return of Christ, his second coming. That's what this Olivet Discourse is about. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because it's Jesus' prophetic revelation that he gave while he was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And I suspect that along the way, at some point, it probably came to your mind the many silly attempts that we have seen from people trying to predict the end quote-unquote, uh, through all kinds of strange calculation and computation. Uh, I still remember in 2011, I think it was, uh, the name Harold Camping uh, that was making the rounds in the news. I don't know if you guys remember. Uh, it was this Christian radio broadcaster who became notorious for announcing with certainty that the world would end in 2011 with some secret rapture and a bunch of earthquakes. And he was all over the headlines and Actually, you might be surprised to know that 
he had made five different predictions between the years 1994 and 2011, none of which came to pass. He had five strikes and no hits. I don't know what sport he was playing, but it sure ain't baseball. Um, or you may also remember, uh, kind of around a similar time, I think it was 2009, um, another prediction became really popular in mainstream media. And this time it had to do with some ancient Mayan calendar that predicted the world would end in December 2012. And it was such a popular topic that Hollywood even made a movie about it called 2012. And of course, if Hollywood made a movie about it, it must be true. But, you know, the, the history of the last 2000 years, especially, is filled with these kinds of failed predictions. And they're all just terribly embarrassing especially when it comes from the lips of professing Christians, because they should really learn to speak less and listen more to the words of Jesus when he said that no one knows the day or the hour. Why do you think you're the exception? And all these things that happen, wars and famines and pestilences and natural disasters, they are not signs of the end, as we saw earlier in Luke chapter 21 a few weeks ago. And so, it's right for us to be kind of embarrassed by all of these end times predictions and distance ourselves from people just watching every headline and reading every tea leaf and just carrying a calculator wherever they go because it's all a silly waste of time at best. And at worst, it's wandering off into myths and turning away from listening to the truth as Paul warned Timothy. But having said all that, I wonder if we, as believers of sound mind and being committed to the Bible, if we may have fallen into the other extreme, where we are not watching at all, where we live without much thought of the last day. And as outlandish as the herald campings are, to be unmindful and inattentive of the coming end is to be just as wrong. It may be a more dignified looking error, but it's an error nonetheless. Because as we can see here from our text, Jesus wants his people to be watching and waiting. Not for the next headline, not, not for the wrong signs, but for the right signs that usher in his glorious return. And so Jesus concludes his discourse with this parable in verse 29. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is already near. And so in the same way, when you see these things taking place, these things, everything that he just talked about, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, the point of this parable is not so specific to figs because uh, a fig tree was just one of the uh, more, more common fruit trees in Jesus's time. Uh, and so, so Jesus is making the point about fruit trees in general. Hence, he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, uh, but figs just being the most common representative. And he's saying, look, you guys know that when leaves begin to appear and those fruit trees begin to bud, you know by looking at those signs that spring is here, which means that summer is right around the corner. It's just as we would say, when you see leaves uh, changing colors, you know that autumn is here. And winter is right around the corner. 
And so likewise, when you see these signs, you know that the full consummation of the kingdom of God is right around the corner. That is to say, don't be blind and ignorant to these signs, but look for them, notice them, keep your eyes open for them. I I want you to be looking for these signs, the right signs that I've told you to look for, not the wrong signs that the world will fancy themselves over and then the things that Jesus expressly said are not signs of the end. But when you see uh, these things taking place that Jesus is talking about, the kind of cosmic upheaval he mentioned in, in starting in verse 25, then you will know that these are signs of the end and that the coming of the Son of Man in the full glory of his kingdom is right around the corner. You see, Jesus wants his people to keep their eyes open and be watching for these things. And it's not because they're going to be hidden and difficult to see and that only those who are obsessed with calculators and cryptography will be able to recognize them. No, obviously, as we saw last week, they will be signs that you can't miss, that no one can miss because all of heaven and earth will rumble to announce his coming. But what Jesus is stressing is that we should be looking for these signs in the spirit of looking forward to them, anticipating and longing for those days. And the reason he stresses this is because he knows our tendency to languish in our waiting and lose sight of the reality that is coming. And so the danger that Jesus is protecting us from through these words is what the Apostle Peter would later warn his readers, which we read at the beginning of this worship service in 2 Peter chapter 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing about what? Scoffing that, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Now, these kinds of scoffers are not the absolutely godless pagans we're talking about, but people who, who had some idea or some, some semblance of a belief in the coming of Christ, but said, you know what? He's not coming after all. And Peter continues, forever since the fathers fell asleep, they'll say, all things are continuing just as they were from the beginning of creation. Hey, the world is ticking on and on. You know, this world is going to last forever, it looks like. But this apparent delay is not because God is late, but it's because God is long-suffering and patient with sinners, giving them yet more time and opportunity to repent and come to Christ. And the day of the Lord will surely come. And, and, and because it will come, should we not be waiting for, and Peter says, hastening the coming of the day of God, longing for those days to come, asking God, let them come sooner, quicker, faster, now. And so the spirit of this mini parable is Jesus saying what he would later say in the book of Revelation, those final words, surely I am coming soon. Don't forget. Don't lose sight. Keep your eyes open and your heart ready for that glorious day. And that's why he continues in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I should mention that verse 32 
is one of the most notoriously difficult verses in the entire New Testament to interpret. Uh, Faithful believers have different views on what this verse means, and it's a genuinely difficult interpretive challenge. I've wrestled with this verse for years, uh, and I've wrestled especially day and night this past week. I think I got some white hair. Uh, But I think I've finally gotten some kind of a handle on it, at least to give a hopefully meaningful explanation today, just in the nick of time. And well, the difficulty is this. What does Jesus mean when he says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place? Who is this generation? Uh, Well, because at initial glance, it would seem that it's his generation that he's talking to, Jesus' contemporaries. Uh, then the meaning would be, everything I've just said will take place within this generation, within the first century. But if that's not the meaning, then the burden of proof is on explaining how that's not the meaning. You can't just say it, you have to prove it through the text. So let me just begin my explanation like this. First of all, first, first things first, we cannot miss the big picture. The, the main point of these verses Surrounding verse 32, which, as we've established, is Jesus reinforcing the assurance of his return, the certainty of his coming again. And so if we interpret verse 32 in a way that doesn't really fit into that train of thought of Jesus giving that certainty of his return, then we may have missed the point of that verse. Jesus doesn't just ramble on and throw in random sentences that have no connection. There's a logic always to his words. And so keep that in mind, and bear with me, just keep that in mind. Uh, And and before we talk about what the verse could mean, let's start with the lowest hanging fruit of establishing what the verse cannot mean. If we understand Jesus to be saying, this generation won't pass away until everything I've just talked about has taken place, then the words, this generation, cannot mean strictly his contemporary generation of the first century. That is, that all these things will be fulfilled by 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Because the cosmic collapse hasn't yet happened. The coming of the Son of Man hasn't yet happened. The consummation of redemption, verse 28, hasn't yet happened. And to assert that it has already happened would be heresy. Because it goes against the orthodoxy of our basic confession as Christians. You may even recognize the Apostles' Creed. Christ ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, from which he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. We're still waiting for that day. Now, there are faithful brothers and sisters who take the view that this generation refers to Jesus' contemporary generation. uh, Namely, that it's all fulfilled in 70 A.D., But in their commitment to orthodoxy, they obviously don't believe that Jesus has already returned, but just in this in this invisible, intangible way. No, we're we're all waiting for the for the visible bodily return of Christ. But in order to maintain orthodoxy and the view that Jesus is talking about 70 AD, they view the cosmic signs in a highly poetic way, referring to the overturning of the world order. And they view the language of the coming of the Son of Man to refer to the coming of judgment on Jerusalem, not the second advent itself. And well, 
I really appreciate their desire to read this generation in the most straightforward way as possible. And also I appreciate their relentless commitment to the Orthodox faith. But when it comes to interpreting the Bible or any text for that matter, here's a general rule of thumb. Rather than taking one verse that's less clear and interpreting or reinterpreting all the other verses that are more clear in light of that one less clear verse, it should be that you take all the verses that are more clear and interpret the one less clear in light of all of those verses that are clear. The, the many verses that are easy to understand should be the ones to explain for us the few verses in the Bible that are difficult for us to understand. Otherwise, you'll end up having to bend a lot of scripture to fit what could be a very imbalanced interpretation based on those few difficult verses. And so that's why we should understand that in these verses, Jesus is clearly talking about his second coming, not exclusively the coming of judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. And if that's the case, then this generation that will see everything fulfilled cannot mean 70 AD, the contemporary generation of Jesus. And just one other thing to consider, that in the Jewish mind, spanning all the way from the Old Testament, one generation was understood as lasting about 40 years, which is why the generation of, of uh, Israelites that died in the wilderness uh, after the Exodus, was 40 years. And so if Jesus meant his contemporary generation, when he said this generation, that would mean that Jesus was effectively saying all these things will happen in the next 40 years. But how would that fit with Jesus also saying in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 36, that concerning that day or the hour, no one knows when that is, not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but only the Father. Now, it's not because the Son is inferior to the Father. They are co-equal and co-essential. But Jesus was speaking from his human nature, which was subject to the true limitation of finite humanity. And so with respect to his divine nature, the Son is one with the Father and shares the same will and knowledge. But in his incarnation and humiliation, the son gave up the right to freely exercise his divine nature, except as the spirit led him according to the father's will. And so with, with respect to his human nature, Jesus genuinely didn't know the day or the hour. And so then how could Jesus be saying to his disciples, I don't know when that day is, but by the way, it'll be in the next 40 years. It doesn't make sense. And you can't say that Jesus is talking about two different events. One is 70 AD and the other is the second advent. And, and only the latter is the thing that he doesn't know. Uh, because if you take the language of Matthew 24 and you synthesize it with the language of Luke 21 and Luke 17, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about one and the same event. And so all this to say, this generation cannot mean his contemporary generation of the first century. And so what does it mean then? Well, Jesus must be talking about the generation that will see these signs taking place. In other words, 
It's not that Jesus is referring to this generation to whom I am speaking, but this generation of whom I am speaking. The final generation of history that will be alive when he returns. Now you might ask, my goodness, why then does he say this generation and not that generation? It would have been a lot easier if he just said that generation and we wouldn't have to wonder about this whole thing. Well, it's because it's very common for the New Testament to speak in this inclusive manner when talking about God's people, almost in a way where it distorts a sense of time. Let me give you an example. If you look in 1 Thessalonians 4, as Paul talks about the coming of of the Lord, of the second coming, this is is how Paul speaks to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4.15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, So Paul is telling them, Some of us, we, some of us, are not going to die before Jesus returns. Jesus will return before we die. That would be, of course, we understand the final generation that sees the signs. But notice Paul's language. He says, some of us, we will still be alive when he comes. And we will meet the Lord in the air. Now listen, none of the believers in Thessalonica that Paul wrote to are alive today. Uh, They're all dead. Paul himself who wrote the thing died a long time ago. He was beheaded under Emperor Nero. And yet Paul speaks in this inclusive, immediate manner as if he's right there with that final generation, speaking directly to them, speaking with them. And though he writes to the local church in Thessalonica, in his mind he's speaking to the universal church, which knows no bounds, not even the bounds of time. And actually, that's how Jesus spoke to his disciples just before this difficult verse, isn't it? He says in verse 31, that when you see these things, when you guys, Peter, James, John, and and all of you, when you guys see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. But Jesus' disciples, who directly heard these words, none of them saw these things taking place. They didn't see the cosmos shaking, the stars falling from the sky. They didn't see the times of the Gentiles fulfilled. They didn't see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. They're all dead. But Jesus speaks to them as if they were going to. Why? Because, church, there is a beautiful solidarity of all of God's people through all generations. The one universal invisible church that spans all nations, tribes, tongues, and times. That's why Jesus talks like that. That's why Paul talks like that. There is a unity and bond of the body of Christ of all ages and generations. And so these words from Jesus are spoken for the hearing of all his people through all time. And although we here this morning, we're not there sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. He means this for us, for all his disciples whom he loves. You want to hear God's audible voice? God speaks to us verbally today in the public reading of scripture and the faithful teaching and expounding of his words. He speaks very intimately to us, just as he did with them who are face to face with him. 
And that's why he speaks of that final, final generation with a sense of nearness, as though they were the immediate generation right there with him, because he is with them, just as he is with us, just as he was intimately with the 12 sitting together on that mountain. Now, why does Jesus say this at all? That this final generation will not pass away until all has taken place. What's the purpose behind these words? Again, remember the big picture, the main point. He's giving the assurance that he really will return. And so here's the thrust of his words. That when that final generation, and maybe it's us, when that final generation begins to see the signs, they won't have to wait long. That generation won't pass by until everything is fulfilled. It won't be a prolonged period of time that spans many years. But when the day comes, it will all happen very quickly. He will hurry. Now, can you feel the tenor of his voice? It's him saying, my beloved bride, I know you have been waiting for the wedding day. You have been waiting a long while. And when it comes, it's here now. No more waiting. No more prolonging. I have been waiting for this glorious day. And now at last, the time has come. And I will come to you when I come. I will come to you swiftly. And verse 33 is Jesus' stamped signature. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. He's saying, mark my words. I am coming for you, my precious church. Just wait a little bit longer. Surely I am coming soon. You see, his quickness is an expression of his eagerness to come for his bride, who has waited patiently and longed for the day of seeing the face of her bridegroom. And oh, that we would be found indeed waiting patiently and longingly for him. And so Jesus gives this final exhortation in verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it'll come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. This is Jesus's pastoral plea to his church. Be very careful to not be absorbed with this world that is passing away, lest you be unprepared for the day when it comes. And he first mentions dissipation, which is a fancy way of saying having a hangover and drunkenness. And of course, the immediate sense is with respect to alcohol. Drinking alcohol is not a sin, but getting drunk is clearly a sin because you have given your mind over to the influence of alcohol rather than the influence of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. And Jesus mentions this vice because that's such a vivid representation of the unbelieving world. That they give over their minds to anything but the truth of God. And then even in this physical sense, people drink their pain away because they don't want to be sober and live in reality. Because reality distresses them. And so they depend on intoxication to get them by, to distract themselves from reality. 
But that's, that's in a very broad sense because notice how Jesus doesn't stop there talking just about alcohol. But then he says, let your hearts be weighed down also by the cares of this life. And now that's something we can all resonate with, isn't it? That dissipation and drunkenness may refer to a lifestyle of physical hangovers and being, being intoxicated with alcoholic beverages. But the cares of this life is the lifestyle of spiritual hangovers and being intoxicated with the love for the world. Not in the evangelistic sense, but in a fleshly sense. And this church is probably our greatest danger to which we must be vigilant to take heed. The drunkenness of worldliness. Now listen, the answer is not to pursue asceticism, a life of depriving yourself of everything that is good and enjoyable. In fact, Paul warns of the demonic origin of the teaching of asceticism in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says there are false teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The, the, the blessings in life, marriage, good food, wonderful experiences, seeing, seeing the beauty of creation, all of these things, they, they are to be enjoyed as God has given them to us even in this fallen world. And the Christian should be the ones to be, to be able to enjoy earthly blessings more than anyone else because we're able to render thanks and praise to the source of every good gift and also to know that every Earthly beauty and pleasure is but a tiny little shadow of the reflection of the infinite beauty of the majesty of God who created all those things and gave them to us so generously as an expression of his heart. But the danger that Jesus warns us of is found in the spiritual analogy that alcoholic drunkenness is a sin of excess and indulgence in what God has created as good, even wine. And in the same way, spiritual drunkenness is a sin of excess and indulgence in the earthly blessings that God has given to you. It's to fall in love with the world and drink your fill of this world to the point of losing your appetite for heaven and the joys of being with Christ forever. And so, and so this is the biblical way to think about life on earth and, and, and all the blessings and good pleasures in it. God gives them to you in His kindness and in His love. And He says, My dear child, sip and enjoy these blessings. But sip them. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to my glory. But the problem is, is that it's, so often we don't sip, but we drink ourselves drunk. And we make idols out of everything that God has given to us that's good. Our comforts, our health, entertainment, family, friends, what have you. And if in hearing all of this, you immediately react in self-defense, and you say, well, I'm not spiritually drunk. If that's your immediate reaction, 
You probably are. You're too drunk to realize that you're drunk. I mean, just as every drunkard who's wasted out of his mind says, Oh, officer, I swear I'm not drunk. Oh, whoa. That may be you, spiritually speaking. Have you considered that you are not the best gauge of your own sobriety? But Jesus, in his words, is the only gauge of the state of your mind. And it is his words that must renew your mind. Now, church, especially as those who, who, who live in this part of the world, where, where God has given to us so much more than we could ever deserve, even in an earthly sense, we would be lying to ourselves if we do not recognize how frequently drunk we are and how idolatrous our hearts can be. And we must be spiritually vigilant to remember Lot's wife, lest we become like her. Who, remember Lot's wife, though her feet had left Sodom, her heart remained in that worldly city, which she loved and stored all of her treasures there, and she perished. All because she was caught off guard when the appointed day came, the day of the Lord in a microcosmic sense upon Sodom. And she wasn't prepared to leave her precious Sodom. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we must be prepared daily to leave this world behind and to meet our Lord in the air when he comes. That must be the driving force of even how we pray. Verse 36, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. How do we stay awake? How do we stay sober? It's by praying and confessing our drunkenness, confessing our weakness, our feebleness to God and depending on Him for help. It's the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he said, I pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then this line at the end, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Protect me spiritually from my own propensity to sin. Christian, how often do you pray for your own soul? It's great to pray for other people. It's great to pray for the things that happen in the world, but how often do you pray for your own soul? Do you, ever, do, do you pray every day for strength to persevere in faith and to be devoted to Christ? Or do you take your perseverance for granted? Do you overestimate yourself? And do you not know that apart from Him you can do nothing? You see, the true Christian spirit is not one that confides in his own spiritual strength, but the true Christian spirit is to be poor in spirit, a humility and a sobriety that knows his own spiritual weakness and the leaven of worldliness in him and therefore desperately clings to the promise of God's power to help and sustain and renew the believer. And that is the strength we need to escape all these things that are going to take place. It is the strength of Jesus' grace sufficient for us in our weakness which 
through prayer, we seek to know more fully and to trust more deeply. And it is the grace and mercy of Christ that disarms us of our self-defense and our self-righteousness and gives us the assurance that we can come to him openly confessing our weakness, our propensity towards spiritual drunkenness, that we might be renewed in our minds of a sober, precious truth of the beautiful day that is coming and to live in light of it. The day that is coming in which we are going to stand before the Son of Man. And if we are found having trusted in Him, hidden ourselves in Christ, then that day will be a glorious day and nothing else will matter but to welcome Him and much more than that, to be welcomed by Him. And this is the reality that we're all headed to. Whether Jesus returns in our lifetime or if we die before he, he, he comes, one way or another, we will all stand before him. That is the sober truth that we must remember by faith. And the cares of this life, the things that you have on your calendar, the plans that you have made, they're all good things, but they are just temporary things which left unchecked can serve only to distract us and intoxicate us away from what is real and everlasting. As, as many of you know, at least the members of our church, uh, one of our brothers has been in the hospital this past week, and he's doing a lot better now, uh, praise God, and we can keep uh, praying for him. But I got a chance to go visit him in the hospital this past week, I think it was Tuesday, and uh, as I got off the elevator and I walked down the long corridor uh, to his room, which is on the other side of the corridor, I passed by many other rooms um, of patients inside and uh, the, all the doors were open. And so I just, as I was walking by, I just took a little peek and I saw many patients and some I saw, which by all appearances, they looked quite possibly to be on their deathbed. And as I just caught glimpses of that, it struck me. You know, these people are the most sober-minded than anyone else in the world. Because their souls stand on the precipice of life and death, heaven and hell before them. And they can feel it in their bones that eternity is at hand. They know something is about to happen very soon and nothing else really matters. And I just pray that they know the comfort of knowing Christ as their savior and friend and the peace of dying into his arms and awakening to eternal life with him. But, but these dying souls who lay in hospital beds all around the world, they know reality more than any of us in this room. We are all drunk compared to them. I know that we might learn from them. And hear the sermon of a dying breath. And remember that this is the end of all mankind and the living should take it to heart.
Ecclesiastes 7.2. If you're here today not knowing Christ as your Savior and your Lord, this is reality. Your life will end in one of two ways, but it'll end all the same. You will either die just like the rest of mankind or Jesus will return. Either way, you will stand before him under his righteous and holy judgment. And don't stand before him alone. You won't pass his judgment. But stand before him by standing with him and he with you. And still to this very moment, God is patient with you as Christ has not yet returned, but he could at any moment. But God is patient with you, not wishing that you would perish, not wishing that you would go into eternity without Christ, but that you would repent of your sins and turn to him by faith while there is still time. Trust him as the Savior who took the place of sinners on the cross, who took the place of sinners to receive the full measure of God's wrath on their behalf so that sinners who come to him would be delivered from the wrath to come. Friend, wake up to the reality that you know of life and death and heaven and hell and come to Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. And you will be safe and secure in Him. And only in Him. George, let us as, as, as children of light live as children of the day that we are. Awake, alert, and sober not asleep and, and pray and, and trust the Lord daily to keep you sober and so strengthen you to persevere. You know, there's an interesting detail here in the parable of the fig tree that Jesus in his analogy, he says that when you see the leaves, you know that summer is already near. Remember that summer is near not winter. The brightest of the seasons is near. The sun shining in full strength, that is the day that is coming. This is how you stay spiritually sober. Know and believe that the brighter days are yet to come. Long for the age to come of shining glory like you could never imagine in the presence of Christ into whose likeness we will be transformed when we are raised to glory. And Christian, if, if you have ever prayed to God for Him to persevere you and to guard your heart from the drunkenness of this world, then know that every trial and pain and grief that He has brought upon you and that you have experienced in your walk with Him is his most affectionate answer to those prayers. Your, your deepest wounds in life are the things that God uses to stir in you a yearning for the day of his appearing. 
when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And every sorrow and hardship, and as you groan with pain through them, is the Spirit of God groaning with you and in you with groaning too deep for words for the redemption that is drawing near. He is coming soon. And so keep fighting the good fight of the faith. It will be worth it because he has told us, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that in a fearful and fallen world that Christ is our refuge and our solace. And yet, Lord, we we confess our weakness, the sheer dullness of our minds to lose sight of the glories of eternity and the glories of it because we know the security that is in Christ. But Lord, this is our happy confession that we hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. A child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. And we know that the strength and power to, to escape the things that are to come, but to be secure in him, that all the strength and power of it was entirely accomplished by our Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. And that is what we remember as we now take the bread and the cup that his body and his blood given for us. O Lord, use these ordinary elements for the extraordinary purpose of awakening our minds to these eternal realities and help us to live in light of them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.